0: Many times in our church culture, you know, there's so much trivial things that go on. I was uh, watching, I've w- I watch a good bit of preaching, good and bad, you know. Um, and I read a lot of preachers, um, most of them dead. <laughs> I found dead guys preach a lot better than living guys, just because they're, they're, their testimony is sure. Um, they're dead, they cannot fall away now, they are in heaven. And so their testimony stands for the generations. And I think they've been added in some way to the cloud of witnesses that stand above us. Not in the same way as those holy men of the Scripture maybe, but just maybe Team B, you know, up in heaven watching to know that we who call ourselves servants of the living God are actually serving Him and not ourselves. And reading, as I was telling some of the men last week, reading, and I read them some quotes from uh, one of those great men from the past, Reading those men convicts me, you know. Uh, I'm new at this this uh, call in life. I've only been preaching, I don't know, six years now. And so, uh, there's a lot of fear that's still uh, there. And I thank God for that. Listen to what Spurgeon said about uh, sermons. <clears throat> he said, doctrine should be solid, substantial, and abundant. Pulpit in America needs to hear that, doesn't it? Doctrine needs to be solid, substantial, and everywhere. We're guilty already, aren't we? I read words like that and I think, how, how often do we hide teaching like it's to be ashamed of? We even talk that way. Don't we have slogans that way that, that infer that doctrine is something we get into Further down the road. Come to Jesus, then we'll teach you something later. He says, put it up front. Make it substantial. Make it abundant. We do not enter the pulpit to talk for talk's sake. We have instructions to convey, important to the last degree. And we cannot afford to utter pretty nothings. I wish he'd be blunt. He had a problem with being blunt, didn't he? Listen to this, this, this last one. It's just some of the things we gain from those who have gone before us. I read this to the deacons last week. Horses are not to be judged by their bells or their trappings, but by limb and bone and blood. And sermons, when criticized by judicious hearers, are largely measured by the amount of gospel truth and force of gospel spirit which they contain. Brethren, weigh your sermons. Do not retail them by the yard, but deal them out by the pound. Man, it took his uh, calling seriously. One last thing here just came to mind. When the Lord helps me to preach, Spurgeon said, after I've delivered all my matter and have fired off my shot so fast that my gun has grown hot, I have often rammed my soul into the gun and fired my heart at the congregation. And this discharge under God won the victory. Some man who was serious about the pulpit, was serious about uh, what God would do through preaching the Word of God. And that is how serious we should take this event. I don't know if you came here with that kind of seriousness today. Most of us enter into the time of worship as if we're going to tolerate preaching and worship in song. And it's clear in the Scripture and through great ministries through time that that's not been the pattern. The pattern has been worship through the Word. And worship through the Word is through singing and praying and reading the Scripture and preaching. It's all the Word. No one is ever saved without the Word of God. No one is ever saved without the Word of God. Don't let anybody fool you. There has never been a conversion that did not take place based on the Word of God. And so when we come to this moment, it's all important. It's more important than any other dealing you will have this week. This is the hour in which lives are changed. Souls are converted. Jesus Christ is made real through His Word. I pray that it's that serious to me and to you as always here at Grace Fellowship. John chapter 5. We've been in John 5 for a while. We've taken breaks. Last week we took a little break as we did the Lord's Supper and I've come back now to finish the message I began on August the 5th. So if you uh, weren't with us, I want to recap a little for you so you don't get a feeling that you're in the middle of a sermon. Jesus Christ has finished this great healing which took place on the paralytic there at the, at the pool. There were hundreds, literally hundreds of sick people at that pool. People who were, who, who were lame, people who were quadriplegic. They could not uh, walk even. And there, there, were, there were many sick and infirm there. And I've said, and I believe John's point here is that the world is that way. And would you agree that our world is full of people just like this. Spiritually. Not physically. But spiritually. The world is full of people who have infirmity. In their flesh. They cannot come to God. Because they're paralyzed. By sin. And they're separated. From the living God. Jesus showed up. There in John 5. You can read it later. And he goes directly to a man who is paralyzed. And he asks a very pointed question do you want to be healed and and I've said often and say again today that is the way you are saved if you're saved Jesus Christ comes to you personally through his word and the power of his spirit and he says specifically do you want to be saved do you want to be healed do you want to believe and he has purpose behind the question. See, we get lost in general thought. When someone says the world is dying, going to hell, that's too general, isn't it? It's too broad. We can't wrap our minds around almost 7 billion people. That's, that's impossible. But when someone brings it specifically home to your house, to your neighbor to your workplace, and they say, John, Jane, whoever, they're going to hell. They're paralyzed in their sin. They cannot believe in Christ. All of a sudden, it impacts, should, the believer's heart. We get serious about it at that point. Jesus goes to this man. The man's not worried about all the other people at the pool. He's worried about himself. But he cannot get in the water, he cannot find healing. There's been no hope. He's been there thirty-eight years now. And Jesus makes a command, which he makes to, to to lost men when he saves them. It's very similar. He says, Get up, take up your bed, and never cease to walk. When he comes to your lost heart and he says, Do you want to be saved? the Spirit works inside of you this answer of how can I be saved? Who can save me? I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. That's what the man said. Nobody can help me. And Jesus says to that heart, get up, take up your cross and follow me and never cease following me. He empowers to do what no one else can do. He empowers that individual to do what no one else can cause them to do. That's the background for his teaching, which he goes directly into when he's confronted by the Pharisees. And we're at the end of that teaching. He's taught that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he has the right over all men, because the Father has given him that right to bring honor to the Father. He's obedient to the Father. And he even talked about the judgment which is coming. The judgment which is here and the judgment which is coming. And then he comes to close this teaching. And he focuses on witnesses. And that's really what we're looking at today. There's one great witness and four confirming witnesses in this last section. If you look there in verse 30, it says, I can do nothing on my own, Jesus speaking, as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not, dream- deemed, not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that He bears about me is true. Look down in verse 37, our passage, part of what we was read today, earlier. Actually in the verse 36, For the works of... That the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. That's the one great witness to the messiahship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ is the Father. In truth, He needs no other no other witness. This is the trump card. The Pharisees often want to argue and debate about whether it's right to do a miracle on this day or that, whether Jesus should or should not speak in first person about forgiving sin. They want to debate a lot of issues. Jesus, instead of getting into a debate, often and and I would almost say always turns them to the Father. Because the Father is the witness to Christ. The one great witness... And indeed, He's witnessed, we're going to see today from beginning to end, about the Lordship, the Messiahship, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Jesus needed a witness, and the only witness He needed was the Father, and He's had that witness since before the foundation of the world. So what, what is He doing then? Why are the other witnesses? Because He's merciful. He's merciful. It's the only answer we can give. He loves these people enough, even though they are lost in their sin. He loves them enough to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is Lord. Knowing that they would not receive it, yet he still proved himself. He entered, he humbled himself to the law of the day, which was that you had to have two or three witnesses. So he has the one witness, and that's all he needed. And he's had that from before the foundation of the world. And yet he says, For you, so that you might believe, I'll give you some other proof. Right after he talks about the Father, he goes into talking about John the Baptist. And we talked about John's witness to Christ. It was solid. It was continuous. It was, it was in many ways uh, the perfect witness to the, to the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ. John was a light, a lamp. Set on fire by the glory of God to prove, to show that Jesus is the Christ. And today we look at the last three witnesses. These supporting witnesses. Why did he give these witnesses? I mean, I mean, why? Because he desires us to believe. He has a desire that they believe, that they be saved. So we come to this third witness. The Father is a witness. John the Baptist is a witness. And then Jesus says in verse 36, My miracles are a witness to who I am. Miracles are a popular topic in our day, aren't they? They always have been. People are enamored by miracles. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. One is that we are physically focused, not spiritually focused. I think that's the major reason. We're so enamored, so engrossed, so so captivated by physical manifestations of God's power because we are physical beings who focus on our flesh more than we do our spirit. When's the last time you saw someone bursting at the seams to tell you about being delivered From spiritual sickness in their life. An addiction. A temper. When's the last time? Maybe it's happened for you. It rarely, if ever, happens for me. You know why? Because people could care less about those things, really. They don't see that as miraculous. But let somebody tell you that they went to a meeting where they were physically healed If that's said at your workplace, you will draw a crowd. People will show up. Where was he? How did he do it? How can I get it? Why? I think it's a condition of our lost nature. We think it's better to be physically whole than spiritually made alive. We don't believe Matthew 5 when Jesus says it's better to enter the kingdom of God without an eye than it is to enter hell whole. We actually believe it's better to be whole. It's hard for us to believe it's better to cut our hand off if we're a thief than it is to fall under judgment because we're a thief. We actually believe it's better to have both hands. Given a choice, most of us in our flesh would choose physical well-being. The perfect body image. The most strength. A quick mind. Success physically in whatever our endeavors are. We would choose those things more than we would choose. Spiritual. Eternal change in our soul in our heart so I don't think this this enamored approach we have to miracles is a healthy thing you might have picked up on that I think people who are physically focused love miracles Jesus performed miracles and in his wording in John's especially they're called signs have you ever noticed that? This is a sign that you might, what? Believe. There's a sign. These were signs of His Lordship, of His power, of your need to believe in Him. That's what they were. They were signs. Paul tells us that Jews long for a sign. And Gentiles long for Knowledge. And to the Jews, there's not enough physical signs. And to the Gentile in the gospel, there's not enough knowledge. And they both deny Christ. That's Paul's summation of what goes on with miracles. Paul's summation is a lot like John's summation of miracles. A lot of people came to Jesus based on those miracles. And when the sayings got hard, they left. They wanted the physical blessing and not the spiritual change and transformation. Our day is full of that. We want what Jesus will give us now, not what He promises to give us in the future. We want it now. The greatest spiritual spiritual successes you may be able to point to in your life, if you think about it, are tied to physical things. Think about it. Momentary blessings. I'm not saying they're not blessings. I'm not saying they're not good. But that's all we think of. Ask a man, how do you know God is blessing you? And see what He answers. See if it's heart level, deliverance from sin, deliverance from addiction. Or see if His answers are all surface and physical. Physical healing. My mama got well. My wife is a good wife. I've got good kids. It's all about physical, momentary things. And Jesus offers these signs for a totally different reason. I want to tell you that the reason He offers them is so that you might believe in Him as the Son of God. That's the reason. Signs, for that matter, miracles, really shouldn't catch us off guard or as a surprise because all a miracle is is a restoration for that moment or that window in that circumstance to the way things ought to be. Really, that we talk about miracles as if they're breaking physical law. I want to challenge you to think like George Ladd does about miracles in the way I do, and that is that miracles are a restoration of the original law of God. When Jesus came to the earth, He performed many miracles. I believe that in that Palestinian region of the world, it was as close as it has ever been to heaven on earth during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. I believe hundreds and thousands were healed. John gives us a little bit of a window into that when he says, I couldn't even write down all Jesus did. I couldn't. It would be impossible. I think he went about the countryside healing thousands of people. Matter of fact, the whole world knew about it or the whole world in his way of thinking. And it's told us in the scripture that the whole world recognized his miracle working power. In in, uh, John 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes and says, We see these miracles that you do. See, the world, the Pharisees knew he was a great man, and they recognized his miracle-working power. In just a few verses ahead in John's writing, in John 7, verse 31, the Scripture reads, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Many people believed in Him because there were thousands of miracles. We often get the picture that there are just a few people healed. No, many were healed in Christ's day. It's as close to heaven on earth as we will ever see in this life. And so His miracles were great, and they were a testimony to His power. John focuses in on seven miracles, seven signs, and he has specific reasons for them. I want to run down the list. If you're taking notes, try, try to keep up. If not, we're going to get to them in turn. The first miracle is in John chapter 2, water to wine. It shows that He is the Creator and it is a symbol of Christian joy. We're bothered by that last statement. I said that in Sunday school last week. But wine was a symbol of Christian joy. It was treated that way for centuries. They celebrated Christian freedom and joy through the partaking of wine at their feasts. It was a symbol of the life, the abundance of life that God would give them in Christ. He took the cleansing water of that wedding feast and He turned it into wine to say you're free from this law-ridden outward cleansing, you're free from that in me and you have joy now. And it's everlasting joy. That was the first one. He changed water to wine. He took a, help, uh, uh, he, he took a nobleman's son and he healed him. And it showed his power to overcome sin and, and sickness. It also showed his power to give someone faith because the nobleman had no faith and yet when he hears that the healing of his son occurred at the very moment that Jesus spoke, he has faith. It showed Jesus' power over sickness, but it more than that showed his ability to give someone faith. The third miracle John records is this one in John 5. The disabled man. The paralytic man. It shows that God has grace. Not just a little grace, but a great grace. 38 years this man has laid in the hot sun hoping that one day he would be healed. And Jesus came and instantaneously made him well. Gave him strength in his legs and he walked. Great grace. Jesus could have went to the festival, bypassed this man. Who would have known the difference? But he had grace in this man's life. The fourth miracle in, or sign in John's Gospel is is the feeding of the 5,000, which we will get to, Lord willing. Feeding of the 5,000. It shows that Jesus satisfies the hunger of the soul. It's really not about bread. It's really not about fish. It's really not about lunch. It's about the fact that they needed satisfying, not physically, but spiritually. And Jesus said, I'll supply what you need. And he's going to teach there after that about the bread that comes down from heaven. And that's why we know that it's not about the little boy bringing his snack and Jesus giving him something to eat. Five. The fifth thing he did was he walked on water. He walked on the water. Nothing is impossible for Christ, this miracle says. Can you walk on water? Can anyone walk on water? Jesus can. And He did. He has power over the natural realm. Six is the healing of the man that was born blind. This would have been seen as impossible in Jesus' day. Maybe someone who became blind could be healed, but this man was born blind, and Jesus healed him. It shows His power over your spiritual blindness. He can make you see. He can make you have eyes to see. Finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says in that passage exactly what He wants to teach. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall never die. Though he die, yet shall he live. That's what He wanted to teach. That He has power over eternal life. See, when we take the miracles, the signs, and we assign them the meaning that the Bible assigns them, people lose interest. People don't really care. People say, well, I just get to how he did that. I want to know the mechanics behind how he turned fish and loaves that little bit into feeding not 5,000, 5,000 men, probably 14,000, 15,000 people with a couple of loaves and a few fish how do he do it and when you take people's focus off of that and say now the real meaning of this is that he can satisfy you spiritually people say well I don't care about that just tell me how he did it you take the focus off of him raising a paralytic and you say the focus of that really is that Christ raises dead men's souls to life people say that's no fun Give me the miracle worker. That's who I want. May I make this observation? You want it because you're fleshly. And all you care about really is that you have a good life today. You don't really care about eternal things. And that's what Jesus told the Pharisees in this teaching. My signs are a witness to me. I worked them by the power of the Father. You don't believe them. Why didn't they believe them? They saw them. They couldn't dispute that it was happening. What does Jesus mean when he says, You don't believe the miracles that I work? It has to be that they did not accept the spiritual meaning behind the miracle. They were okay with a great physician who healed sicknesses. That was fun, that was entertaining. They were not okay with that man saying, This simply paints a picture for you of who I am and that I am the source of life, of healing spiritually, of satisfaction. He has the Father, he has John, he has the miracles, the miracles that reveal his nature, who inspire faith in him and strengthen the faith of all of those who believe. He also says He has the witness of Scripture. In 39 through 44, we see this. He tells them, look at, this, look at the verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, He's not telling them something to do. He's not saying go search the scriptures. This is a statement of fact about what they are doing. You search the Bible. Because you think the Bible offers life. Jesus would say that to 90% of the people in this room. I'm convinced of it. Conservative, Bible believing Christianity suffers today because we trust the Bible and not the God of the Bible. We suffer because we can read a story in the scripture and take Christ totally out of it and be satisfied to know the inner workings of the mechanics of the grammar, the facts, the knowledge that it brings. We can be satisfied there. And we don't really want Jesus. He says, You search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have life. Look what he says next. Not, don't stop searching. He doesn't say, Don't look in the Bible. What does he say? The scriptures are about me. You know what my sin is? You know what I think about 90% of the people in here's sin is? If we had our clothes off spiritually and we could see each other as we really are. We have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of facts. We know the Bible. We know the grammar. We know all of that. And we don't know Jesus And we study it and we tell others to study it because we say, that's how you'll know him. But we don't know him. We're satisfied with academic, puffed up knowledge and not a relationship. We're guilty. Because again, we're not focused on who we are in Christ and the relationship we need with Him. We're focused on looking good in front of our peers with having the answers when the teacher asks the question, with being able to tell somebody else what the Bible says. We're Pharisees. We search the Scriptures because we think the Scriptures give us life. And Jesus would say, Those scriptures are useless without me. They mean nothing. They have no meaning. They have no life except that you know me. What scripture is he talking about? Genesis through Malachi. Well, that's the Old Testament. That's not about Jesus, that's about the law. That's about the sacrifices. That's about Israel. That's not about Jesus. That's not about the church. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus, in Luke 24, 27, when He came across the men headed there, His disciples, who were so downtrodden after His death, and they had heard a little something about His resurrection, they were walking there, and they really were just ready to throw the towel in. And Jesus appeared to them and they didn't even recognize Him. They had studied the Scriptures and they didn't know who the Christ was. The reason I think they didn't recognize Him was they weren't expecting Him to raise up from the dead. Even though when they heard that He had raised from the dead, they doubted it. They did not believe it because they hadn't believed the Scriptures. Jesus in that conversation says to them that the scripture all of it is about the Christ it's about me and the bible says in 24 verse 27 luke writes for us he starting with the law and the prophets he told them everything concerning himself in all the scriptures And then he sat down to eat bread with them and when he broke the bread, he must have had some way of doing this that was distinguished. When he did it, they immediately knew it was him. And they remembered what happened in their heart when he taught the Scriptures to them and they said, this is him. This is our Lord. Nobody else does things this way. The Old Testament is about Christ. Christ. And yet, I I, I suffered for years from the fact that I approached the Old Testament as a storybook. Didn't you? In Sunday school, I was taught lessons about little Joseph. And how I ought to be a man of integrity like Joseph. I was taught stories about David because I ought to be brave like David was brave when he faced the giant. And when you face your giant, just familiar with you? When you face your giant, you got to be like David. I heard the story about Elijah and the feeding of the birds to Elijah. And it was all about how great a man Elijah was. I like this one as a preacher. story about the little people that ran out and made fun of Elijah. And he sicked the bear on them. I like that. My grandmother quoted that to me just yesterday on the phone. I told Amy she really believes that you know, if you make fun of a preacher, this could happen to you. My flesh says let them believe it. <laughs> but we hear these stories and we have a earthly meaning for them. And yet when we look in Genesis, there was a covenant made with Adam and Eve and when they broke it God showed them grace through the sacrifice of an animal set up a system that pointed to his son and in Genesis chapter 12 when he comes to Abraham Abram at the time and he says I will bless you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed He was talking about His Son. And when He came to Genesis 15 and He recounted that covenant again, that agreement again, He worded it very similarly. And then in 17, He repeats it again. And then in 22, Genesis 22, Abraham offers his son Isaac and God, Yahweh, the Lord God, stopped him and provided a sacrifice And Abraham left the hill that day saying in his heart and to his servants that God would provide for himself a sacrifice. He understood the gospel. And when we leave Genesis 22, we find Jacob with his brother Esau. And there's all this talk about a birthright and a bowl of soup. And we get so focused on that that we miss the fact that the reason that Esau... Should have loved the birthright was because in it, the promise of the Messiah was held. And he should have wanted the Messiah more than he wanted to be filled from his hunger. But he didn't. He despised the Messiah. He actually said, Jesus, this Messiah is worth less than a bowl of porridge for my belly. And that's why God judged him. And then Jacob We see the contrast. Not because he's a great man. He was a liar. He was a deceitful, wicked, sinful man. And yet, in the book of Genesis we're told, when the Lord came down from heaven, He grabbed hold of him and would not let him go until he was blessed. He wouldn't. He refused it. He wrestled with God. And he walked the rest of his life with a limp. But he had the blessing. He loved the blessing more than he loved health. Do you love the blessing more than you love health? Jacob did. And then Jacob's sons, Joseph, is pointed out to us. Not as a man who was an in adulterous woman's overtures. But as a man who would enter Egypt. Would become favored among Pharaoh's men would save God's people from a a famine. And then 430 years later, after that, uh, promised Abraham they'd be delivered out by the hand of God. Sound familiar to you? Because in Matthew, my Bible says that Jesus went into Egypt and was protected from the death troops of Herod and then was delivered out so that He might deliver His people. Joseph really in the story about Joseph and an adulterer Joseph is a story about Christ because he says in Genesis chapter 50 you meant it for evil yet God meant it for good We walk through the scriptures and what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is they're all about me 2 Samuel chapter 7 David Presumptuously says, I want to build a house for you. I dwell in this great temple and you're in a tent. I want you to have a house. And God says, No. You won't do it, but your son shall build me a house. And the throne will never leave your family forever and ever. And then we have the persecution and the exile. And there's no one to sit on the throne for hundreds of years. Did God forget His people? No. Because the opening passage of Luke says that God placed His seed in the the form of a man in His mother, the virgin's womb, and He was born. Where? In Bethlehem. The city of David. He came from the lineage of David. And Peter tells us that it is that man who sits on the throne forever and ever. Jesus Christ. The scriptures are about Christ. Not about your little folk heroes in Israel. They're about me. Pharisees, they're about me. Scriptures are a witness to Christ. And any time that I can approach the Scripture and then learn and grow mentally and not spiritually, I am a Pharisee. We love the Scriptures, but do we love Christ? And the final witness? Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For he wrote of me. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is not an elevation of the writings of Moses over the words of Christ because Moses only wrote what Jesus told him through the Spirit to write what is this then that we have for us a witness of the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth and the witness is a Messiah's coming listen to Moses' story found in Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for He was looking to the reward. So what is Jesus saying when He says, You don't believe My Father? believe John you don't believe John believe the miracles you don't believe the miracles believe all the scriptures you don't believe all the scriptures you believe in Moses you say he witnessed about me what is Jesus saying believe in me what am i saying believe in Christ that passage in Hebrews should really should Be like a punching glove in their spiritual face. Because this man Moses, thousands of years before Christ, believed in Christ. So, well, you know, he kind of had it easy. He saw a burning bush and, you know, God spoke to him. Before that, when he was in Egypt, the wealthiest country in the world, and He was in line to be heir to that treasure, He said openly and in His Spirit, I'd rather have Christ than all of this. Power, wealth, position. I'd rather have Jesus than this. So Jesus says, you don't believe the Father... You don't believe John. You don't believe the scriptures. You don't believe miracles. Can you believe your father, your great prophet Moses? Can you believe him? Because I'm telling you, he believed in me more than he believed in this world. And it applies to you and me. How? I was telling Amy Friday, Friday night, My greatest fear for myself and for those who go to church at Grace Fellowship is that we are satisfied with the momentary pleasures of this world. We're satisfied with being a little different than other churches. We're satisfied with coming to church and going home and We're satisfied with having good families. We're satisfied with the American dream. We're satisfied with what this world can offer us. And we shroud all of that with this belief in Jesus. When in reality, if Jesus took for a moment my physical possessions my soul would be in danger. Because I love that. I place value in it. Early this week, I was praying, God, I'm not ready to suffer for you. Like so many around the world do. I'm not asking you to give me more than I can handle, but make me able to handle anything you put in my path. Why? Because I love the world. I love my TV. I love love my family. I love my house. I love my food. I love my stuff. I love the treasures of Egypt. And I'm not loving Christ more than those things. How much do I have to give up? I can't answer the question for you. I can't answer it for me. Except in this way, the way Jesus did. Believe in Christ, this is what that means. Die to self completely. Take up cross. And follow him. We wear crosses like jewelry. And they are the emblem of death. Moses picked up the cross in Egypt. His cross was to leave the treasures of Egypt to be despised with the people of God. It's no different for you and me. So which will it be? Christ or this world? You can't have both. You can't have both. The indictment on the American church, Grace Fellowship included, is this. There are no radicals. No radicals. I'm not radical. John Piper really is not radical. More radical than I am. He's not really radical. And he would tell you that. Forsake the world. Believe in Christ. Believe the Father. Believe the Scripture. Believe the miracles. Believe John. Believe Moses. Believe in Christ. And if you do, you'll leave this world. Let's pray. Father, it's sobering for me, for us. Lord, I'm so afraid that what I've done is created a a way to do less than give my life. I excuse myself, comparing myself to others, and that's not what you call me to do. And so I confess it. I'm a lot like the Pharisees. And it'll take you changing my life, changing my heart. Lord, if Grace Fellowship has any hope of being radically different from just your typical organizational churches, you will have to change us. You will have to make us satisfied in you and not in this world. We're incapable of that. I'm more convinced of that now than ever ever. We are incapable, Lord, so you will have to do it through your grace, and I beg you to do it. Please, Lord, help us believe in you. Help us to believe in you and forsake this world. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us.